the teachings of the apostles in those early days expressed an imminency of God's moving among his people and ultimately that he would come again in power to reign in Jerusalem. They wanted to see that happen. They expected to see that happen even in the first century church. That imminency still exists in many hearts today, and that's as it should be. The Lord said, keep looking up, for your redemption draws near. That has been the command of the Lord that I hold dear. And I encourage all of you to continue to respect what the Word of God says in your everyday living. Live it out according to what God has spoken. Because we are in the last days. And I believe that when we look at the Word of God in that early church, those early years of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the churches throughout the then known world, we see very clearly, if we look at it closely, a pattern. And that pattern happened to be where the church was growing tremendously, very fast, and many things were happening all around the various places where the church had been established. But the enemy was right behind them, trying to cause all kinds of trouble, to raise all kinds of havoc, to discourage the people of God, to persecute the church. And that also is something that is continually happening, even in our present day. And we need to be on guard. But reading these passages that we're going to be looking at today should give us, I hope, a sense of hope, knowing that God is in control. And that no matter what happens in the church, whether there be persecution, and there is in many places around the world, whether there be all kinds of troubles that we will have to face as believers, people scornfully using us, people laughing, mocking at those of us who believe in a risen Savior and in His coming again, that will intensify just as all of the other signs. Are we ready for it? Were they ready for it? I submit to you that they most certainly were. And I also submit to you that all of us should be, and we can be, if we trust in the Spirit of God to enable us to stand against the wiles of the enemy, to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit, driving us, guiding us, helping us. He did it then. He's doing it now. The book of Acts chapter 12 is immediately following the information that we received regarding the church that had begun in Antioch of Syria, north of Jerusalem by about 300 miles. The church had been growing and now was being introduced to Gentiles. And there were many Gentiles who were coming to faith. Recall that 
Jerusalem found out about that taking place so far away from the home center of Jerusalem where the church had begun. So they sent Barnabas all the way up to Antioch to find out what's going on. And he was so pumped when he got there to see how the Lord was moving so mightily among the Gentiles. And he realized as time proceeded that he needed to see if he could find Saul of Tarsus because he knew that Saul of Tarsus was specifically appointed by the Lord to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Barnabas recognized the fact that Paul, then known as Saul, was desperately needed to continue the work that was growing and growing at such a rate. So he went all the way to Tarsus from Antioch, found Paul, Saul, and brought him back to Antioch. And they were there teaching the Word of God daily. And the church was continuing to grow for about a period of a year. And then, at that time, a prophet had come from Jerusalem up to Antioch and, as a prophet, spoke prophetically about a terrible, terrible drought that was about to fall in the region. And that did take place. And because the prophet had spoken those words, it was decided that in that church, filled with Gentiles primarily now, there was going to be an offering taken, and Paul and, and Barnabas, and again I should say Saul, because he hasn't named Paul yet, that's in chapter 13, I'm going ahead of myself, but Saul of Tarsus and Barnabas were to take that collection and bring it down to Jerusalem to help the church in Jerusalem, because the famine would be so great, they would be impacted by that in a way that perhaps no other place in the world might be impacted because they were already suffering at the hands of the Jews. Remember, there was a great deal of Jewish persecution against the church in Jerusalem. It wasn't then called the church. By the way, the word church is a Greek word, ecclesia, which means just simply assembly. We are an assembly of saints. And we are called, the people, all of us together collectively are called the church. We are called Christians because that was a name that was given to the church back in that first century growing spirit of Christian ministry to the Gentiles in Antioch. We can be thankful for Antioch of Syria for the name Christian, which means Christ follower. Well, Barnabas and Saul come down to Jerusalem, and that was the end of chapter 11. We're told by Paul in Galatians that he had met with Peter and James for a period of about 15 days. And it was during that time that chapter 12, the episodes that are given in this chapter, had taken place. So read with me in verse 1 of chapter 12. Remember the church is being persecuted by Jews who do not want this sect that is known as the way to continue, but they had no way of stopping it. So instead of trying from a point of view of their religion, they went to the Roman government. And it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And then he killed James, 
the brother of John with the sword. Two verses that describe a terrible event. The second recorded martyr in the book of Acts is James, the brother of John, one of the twelve apostles. Remember, James and John were with Peter and and were with Andrew and all of the other apostles for three plus years walking with Jesus Christ. He was beheaded, apparently, by a sword or thrust through. Most people believe he was beheaded. But it was a terrible thing to have occurred. And I think it probably was a shock in the church. Not only are the Jews now actively involved in seeking to destroy the believers of this way, but now the Roman government is actively involved as well. That was a terrible prospect for them. That must have caused a shockwave of fear throughout that church in Jerusalem. This Herod, by the way, and I I think it's necessary for us at least to know some of the history that's involved, because it really is, I think, important. And I hope it doesn't bore you, but it's something that I think I'd like to share with you with regard to the men who were known in the Word of God as Herod. The very first Herod that's introduced in the Word of God in the New Testament is Herod the Great. He reigned in Jerusalem as a Roman puppet. He was an Idumean, a man who was partly Jew, but mostly Gentile, appointed by Rome, and he was a despot. He was terrible. He murdered his own wife and some of his sons because he was afraid that they were going to try to take his throne from him. He is the one who attempted to make sure that the Messiah did not take his throne. Remember in Luke's Gospel, in the very first portion of Luke's Gospel, he gives us the story of Herod the Great. When the Magi came from the east and wanted to know, where is the king that's been born? It caught his attention. And after having found the information that he sought, he sent those magi on their way to Bethlehem. And he told them, when you find him, return to me so that I might come and worship him too. That was not his intent. And fortunately, the Lord made sure that they would go another way back to their home to avoid telling Herod, where this one was after they had found him. (laughs) And as the story goes, Herod decided, well, they must not have come back through Jerusalem. And to avoid any possibility of this one born in Bethlehem that they had said was the king of Israel, he decided to have all of the sons two years older or less to be killed in that region of Bethlehem. So he tried to kill Jesus. He wasn't successful. Herod the Great died around 1 B.C. and his sons took over the territories. It was split up into sections after his death so that one of those, another Herod, Antipas, 
was given that territory as a tetrarch over that region of Caesarea and Jerusalem. And it's he who killed John the Baptist. After he was gone, Herod Agrippa I is given the kingdom that once was Herod the Great. The entire kingdom now became his responsibility. Instead of the Tetrarchy, there, were now only, there was now only one king over the entire region of that Judean territory. And he also was hated by the Jews, but he had an advantage over the other Herods. His mother was a descendant from the Maccabeans, which was a very, 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 very well-known and well-received sect of Jewry. And because of his relationship as a Jew, part Jew, he found favor with the Jewish people. But he was always seeking a way to make sure that they were happy with his reign. He was indeed a tyrant like his grandfather. However, he was a little bit less direct in his antagonism. So one of the things that he decided to do was to please the Jewish religious leaders by taking that action that is described in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But not only did he kill James, he also sought another means by which he could give the Jews some pleasure. And one of the greatest pleasures that they perhaps would be able to experience is if they could take the most vocal of all of the apostles, find him, and take his life. So he proceeded to do that. It says in verse 3, And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread... And so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him with two four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now he's playing the game very well. He has found Peter. But the problem is, it was during the time of the highest religious season of the Jewish faith. The time of Passover. The week of unleavened bread had come. So he put him into jail with the intent of killing him after the Passover. They couldn't legally, under the Jewish law, have a trial or an assassination of anybody during that period of time. So he's appeased the Jewish leadership. But he has to wait to finish the job until at the end of that holy week. Well, he's going to make sure this time Peter stays in jail. Remember, we've already seen where Peter has been miraculously delivered from imprisonment, once with John. Remember that story in Acts chapter 5? They were imprisoned, not in the Antonio prison, which is where he is now, but under the temple police, he was put into a place where he was held 
he along with John, and the next morning when they opened the door to where he was being held, they both were gone. An angel had opened the door and let them go, freed them. That happened already. Perhaps Herod has been told about that incident and they don't want that to happen again. So this time, we're going to put him in the Antonia Fortress prison, which is very near the temple grounds. But it's a much more secure place. And not only are they going to put him in that prison, but they're going to chain Peter to two guards, Roman guards, one on each side, inside the prison cell, and two more guards outside the prison cell, preventing anybody from coming into the prison cell to take Peter away. So they thought they had it down. They had it secure. And by the way, that's only four men. But we're dealing with 24-7 guardians. So they needed more than just four men. They needed four groups of four so that they could rotate every watch every four hours. I knew four guards would come in to take that place of that original four and they would rotate around 24-7 every day during the time of this feast. Peter was constantly chained and there were always four fresh guards there with him. How could it be possible that any escape could be ever accomplished? But God. I love those two words. It says in verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. You hear what that says? Constant prayer was offered for him by the church. They were 24-7 praying for their friend Peter. Their church leader was in trouble. They needed to be on their knees praying for him constantly. I like the idea of around-the-clock prayer. In fact, there was a time several years ago now where I felt led to ask people to consider taking a half an hour out of your busy days and schedule that half hour for prayer every day. And some people would be able to pray in the morning. Some people would be able to pray in the afternoon. Some in the evening. Some at night. Some in the middle of the night. And we were trying to get as many people around that 24-hour period to fill half an hour slots as would be possible. It worked out quite well. It was very, very well received. Now, some of you are still here may remember that particular event. But I wonder, how many are still doing it? Maybe it's time for us to do it again. These people were doing it 24-7. They were busy praying for their leadership and for God's help in protecting him and delivering him from this imprisonment. It was a serious thing. It was time for the church to act because there was persecution. There was trouble. There was no apparent way out of this situation. They believed that Peter was going to die unless God intervened, unless God did something miraculous. And so they prayed and prayed 
and continued to pray over and over again. They did not stop their prayer to the Lord. But they also didn't know if God was going to answer that prayer. And that's something that you and I need to face is a reality. We can pray and pray and pray some more and hope and hope that God hears our prayer, and He does. But the question remains, will He answer our prayer in the way that we are asking Him to answer? If we stop praying, then we'll never know if He would have answered that prayer. If only we had continued to pray. Sometimes, Prayer needs a bit of persistence on our part. I'm reminded of the widow who came to a judge who was not a really nice guy. But she came to him because she had an issue that she needed to have him do something in her favor to help her out in the situation. And he refused to hear her case. But she came back and asked again. And he still continued to hear her case. But she persisted daily, coming back over and over again, asking for his help, until finally he said, all right already, I'll do it. Well, it's not because the judge was a righteous man that Jesus gave that particular parable, but it was because of her persistence in going to the judge. And Jesus said, that's how we should go to our God in prayer, in that level of persistence that continues to go to him until the answer is given. And sometimes, friends, the answer is no. And that's because God has a better thing in mind for us. Don't be disappointed when you come to the Lord and ask Him, Oh God, I, I, I want a new job. I want a different job. I want to be able to do this or that or, or something else. I'm just tired of this particular job that I've got. Day in, day out, I come and do the same thing over and over again. Lord, please find me a better job. That's a good prayer. But if God says, no, there's a reason for it. And perhaps it won't be until years later that you find out that the reason God kept you in that position is because you were involved in ministering to the people that you worked with until some of them actually got saved and you didn't even know about it. I think that that's possible, that God will say no because he's got something better for you. I also think it's possible that God will say yes, but it's going to be a while before He gives that answer. So keep on praying. That's what they were doing. They prayed and prayed and prayed some more. And while they were praying, verse 6 tells us, And when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter, that night, Peter was sleeping. Prayer apparently works because Peter was being comforted by the Spirit of God as they were praying for him. He had no fear. He had no need to worry. He had no need to fret over the situation. God's in control. And it may be that Peter remembered what the angel of the Lord had done earlier, but here he is still chained to these two guards it doesn't seem to be any likelihood that he'll be able to escape. But Peter had never really experienced any difficulty falling asleep. Remember in the garden, 
At Gethsemane, Peter was among the apostles who fell asleep instead of praying when Jesus had asked him. And it was the third time that Jesus finally went to them and he said, oh, go ahead and sleep on. The time has come. <laughs> They'd fallen asleep. They couldn't keep their eyes open. Peter was among those to whom Jesus said, Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't know if that was the case with Peter here in this particular situation or not. But apparently he had no hesitation to close his eyes. And it may have been just simply, I am so dead tired, I can't stay awake. That may very well have been. But it's nighttime and Peter is sleeping soundly. His soldiers around him must be wide awake because they had to keep watch. That was their responsibility. And if they failed in their responsibility, Roman law was such that if they did not do what they were instructed to do and found out that they were lax in that responsibility, they would be executed. So they made themselves stay awake, even if Peter was snoring. But he was sleeping, bound with the two chains, one on each side, between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. So they were wide awake. They were alert. They were making sure that they were doing their job and did it well. But God... Oh, I love those words. It's not in the text, but I'm just saying, but God, because God did move. And here's what takes place. Verse 7, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Now, I don't know how that could happen if the guards are wide awake, except it was a miracle. Somehow the angel of the Lord walked into that cell by the two guards on the outside of the cell, opened the cell door, went right directly in front of Peter, and his chains fell off his hands, and the two guards are standing there, perhaps unable to move. Perhaps time stood still for that period of time that the angel had come into that cell, and it was impossible to explain in a natural sense. It had to have been supernatural for that to have ever happened. I believe in miracles. <laughs> I know that many don't. Many very good theologians, by the way, struggle with miracles as they're recorded in the Bible. One of the best theologians that I've studied, uh, that I've read the material that is presented by that particular individual, great ability to just take the Word of God and to share so many wonderful insights. His name is William Barclay, lived in the 18th century. But he didn't believe in miracles. In this particular section that we're reading today, he poo-pooed the idea that it was a miracle, but that they had devised some kind of a scheme to get Peter out of jail, perhaps by bribing the guards, or some other means 
by which they overwhelmed the guards. There was another place where he refused to admit that it was possible for Jesus to have walked on water in the middle of lake, the lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. So instead, he had, his argument was that he walked along the shore on rocks near the shore. He also didn't expect to have anyone believe the miracle of the parting of the water of the Red Sea. So he's one of those who would have said that they didn't really cross the Red Sea. They crossed another sea called the Reed Sea, and it was very shallow. And they crossed along a sandbar that was exposed by the wind, only a few feet deep. I can't do that to the Word of God. I will not do that to the Word of God. I just know that God does miracles. I've seen God do miracles. I know that He still does. And I know that He will continue to do that until the time comes when it won't be necessary any longer. But the miracle of all miracles is soon to take place. And I'm looking so forward to that day. Now Peter is experiencing a miracle. The chains fell off. He's been wakened by this angelic being. But he doesn't understand yet because he thinks he's still dreaming. What a wonderful dream that would have been. But it's reality. <laughs> Behold, the angel of the Lord said to him in verse 8, Gird yourself, tie on your sandals. And so he did. So get dressed. Put your shoes back on. Put your outer garment on and follow me. All the while, the Roman guards were on either side of him and the guards outside of the prison cell, which has a door that's now wide open, are unaware or unable to respond. Verse 9 says, So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them on its own accord. Now, I think the angel had a remote control. You know, like my garage door? Yeah, that's what he did. Another miracle. How does that happen? And by the way, this is the Antonia Fortress. This is a very, very impressive prison, which, well isn't very likely to be able to be taken so easily as what was happening here, unless the Lord is in it. They went out. They went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. I wonder if Peter might have said, Hey, wait, wait, I, I want to talk to you. None of that. There's an urgency now in Peter's mind. The angel is gone. He's out in the middle of the street, in the middle of the night, and he's an escapee from prison. So what do you need to do when you know you're going to be caught and put back into prison? You're going to run as fast as you can to as safe a place as you can get to. So Peter wakens to the fact that this is real. This was not a dream. I actually have been delivered again from a prison and now I'm out in the cold night 
and I need to find protection. So he goes to a home that he knows people are praying for him are there. It tells us in verse 11, when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So he knew where to go. In Jerusalem, this home of a woman named Mary, who was apparently very well known by the church, and she was apparently well off. She had a home that was large enough to house a lot of people. She had an outer gate, which means that she had an inner court where they could gather outside of the home or within the house, which was large enough to handle that. So she was a wealthy woman. And it tells us, that her son's name is John Mark. Well, who is that? Of course you all know that. It's Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. John Mark. We'll see him in several different places in the book of Acts and also in other letters of the Apostle Paul. At this time, he was a young lad, in his teens perhaps. Or he may have now grown into his adulthood, around 20 or 25 years old after this many years have passed. But he's mentioned here for a reason. It's part of the story that continues on after chapter 12. But here he's mentioned, and I want to make sure that we understand why he's mentioned. Because he plays a role in subsequent message that is given by Luke in this amazing story of his travels with the Apostle Paul and his uncle Barnabas. We'll get to that in chapter 13. But Peter knows that this house is where they are praying because they always were praying there. It was their custom to do so. So he goes there thinking that's the nearest and best place for him to go. James was killed by Herod. Peter was allowed to escape that same death. Why did God allow that? Why did God take James and spare Peter's life? Why didn't he spare both? Why didn't he have both of them slaughtered, martyred? Is there an answer that anybody can have as to why God does the things that God does? The only answer I have is God is sovereign. And He knows what's best. And there is a time for every man wants to die and then the judgment. And God chooses one but not another. And it's His sovereign will. Perhaps we'll know the answer someday. Perhaps it won't matter because we'll all be together in that place of glory. And no matter what the time or the reason of our taking our last breath, we are eternal 
and we will live and we will be in fellowship with one another, though we may have lost our loved ones in this present hour. There's a reunion coming, friends. But Peter now is coming to John Mark's mother's home, Mary. And it says in verse 13, As Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer, probably a servant. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood there at the gate. Oh, she got so excited. Think about this. This is very comical, really. If you look at it this way, I hope you do. She comes to the gate to answer, Who's there? And Peter says, It's me, Peter. Let me in. Peter! Oh my God, Peter? Really? And she runs back to tell everybody, but she leaves the gate door shut. She doesn't let him in. He's standing outside desperately wanting to get in because any time now the Romans could be coming down that street and arrest him again. And she runs off to tell the others in the house, Hey, guys, guess what? (laughs) And then look at what happens. In verse 15, they said to her, You're beside yourself. You're crazy. They didn't believe her. Think about that. Here they are praying 24-7 for God to deliver Peter from the hands of the Roman government. And God has done so. And now they're saying to this girl, You're crazy. I don't believe you. It's impossible. Well, why are you praying if it's impossible? (laughs) Don't you know that with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible? They didn't believe that God would answer their prayer. Or they didn't know that God would answer their prayer. And when He did, they weren't sure that they could believe that He did. I'm reminded also of a story that I heard, and, and maybe you've heard this, this, a version of it, but it goes something like this. There was a period of time in a particular area of the nation, I don't know if it was this nation or someplace else, but there was a drought, no rain for many, many days, and their crops were failing. And so the people who attended the church in that little community decided, we need to get together for prayer. And so they told everybody, we're going to meet at the church house at such and such a time for the purpose of praying for rain. And so everybody in the community that was part of that church came to that church and decided, we're going to pray. But among them, there was one young girl who had come along with them. And she brought an umbrella. And one of the adults asked her, what are you doing with that umbrella? And her answer was, well, we've come to pray for rain, haven't we? Was she expecting rain? She had proof of it. Yeah, she was expecting rain. She was believing that God would do that which they were going to pray for. The rest of the people, they didn't really have that kind of faith. But that's the kind of faith that I want us to have. An expectant faith. A faith that says, God will do when I ask in the name of Jesus, according to His will, according to His word, and in His time, and in His way, God answers 
prayer. Well, they believed that too, but they weren't really ready for it. They didn't believe that it was going to happen quite the way that it did. And so, poor Rhoda, insisting that, yes, it is Peter, and them telling her, you're nuts, girl. Go back to whatever it was that you were doing. We're going to continue praying. But she kept insisting. And then they said, well, maybe it's his angel. That's what it says in verse 15. She kept insisting that it was so, and she said, and they said, it is his angel. Well, verse 16 says, now Peter continued knocking, and finally, when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Oh, it is Peter. Fancy that. Wow, that's cool. Peter, hey, how'd you do this? No, they were just so excited to see him. They were so astonished, overwhelmed. They didn't understand how it could be possible. But again, God does the impossible. And we're so grateful that today He is the same God as He has always been. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That means that He's still able to open prison doors. He's still able to take those chains from, uh, from off of us when we are being held down by those chains, whatever those chains may be. Chains of addiction. Chains Chains of sin in our lives. Chains that bring us down and wear us out. Chains that overwhelm. Chains that destroy. Chains that bring ruin to our lives. He's able to take those chains from off of us as well. Go tell these things, he said. When he said in verse 17, motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brother, the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. We're not told where he went, but he went to a place apparently to to remain in hiding for a season. But notice that he says, go tell these things to James. James had been killed. Herod had had James murdered. So who's this James? Well, the only explanation that we have, fortunately, is found in the Word of God. Jesus had brothers, half-brothers. They're named in the the Gospel record. James, Joseph, Simeon. James is apparently the older of his half-brothers. And it is James that we're told after the resurrection that he had met with Jesus personally. Before the resurrection, his half-brothers didn't believe in him. They thought he was Looney Tunes. They thought he was crazy. But after the resurrection, their hearts were changed. James was among the members of the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem because Jesus had appeared to him and showed him the wounds in his hands and his side, his glorified body, spoke with him, encouraged him. And James became a leader in the church. He wrote the letter 
James that we have. He met with Paul. He led the church in those early days. He was in control of the first meeting of the saints where they would have a council of the church to decide with regard to the Gentile church. Peter wants the the friends that he has here in Mary's house, go tell James, let him know. He's concerned for his brother, his friend, and the others who are with him. So the rest of the story is, I think, quite amazing as well. We read in verse 18, as soon it was day, as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. I should think not. No small stir. That means something big had happened. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards. And the answer from the guards was, I don't know how this happened. They had no explanation. And as a result of their inability to explain it to Herod, he commanded that they should be put to death. All 16 men. Which was again the Roman law. If they could not guard the one person that they had in their particular care, if that one person escaped from their guardianship, then they would be the recipients of the penalty that the prisoner was supposed to be experiencing, and that was death in Peter's case. So he had them executed. And after that, it tells us he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So he's king of the whole region, and his palace is in Caesarea. And now he goes on to talk about Herod again, and the results of Herod's animosity toward the church is recorded here for us. Verse 20 says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, north of Israel. Tyre and Sidon was now what we know of as Lebanon, two major cities of that northern region, north of Israel. They're coastal cities. They're merchants where they have a lot of trade between peoples from all over the world. And Herod had some, distinct, uh, some way of controlling the shipping lanes that they were having to have for their merchants to be successful. Well, it tells us they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they needed an insider in Herod's court. They found one in Blastus. And they came to him and asked for peace. They wanted to have some settlement of what they were having to deal with because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Merchandise coming from Israel into Tyre and Sidon, they were dependent on all of that. And he was causing them not to be able to have that amount of commerce that they had once been expecting. So it tells us in verse 21, So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And by the way, this is also recorded extra-biblically by Josephus, the Roman Jew historian. And he tells very much the same story. Slightly different, but 
Most of the details are there, and you can look them up for your own benefit if you would like. In verse 22 it says, And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not that of a man. They were amazed at his oratory skill. They were amazed at the appearance that he had as he stood before them in this royal garb that was sparkling in the sunlight. And they were just thinking, he's a God and not a man. The people kept shouting, verse 22, the voice of a God and not a man. And then in verse 23 it says, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Just this last week, there was an interesting article that I had seen. In the Turkish parliament, one of their MPs was giving a speech before the rest of parliament in Turkey. And he was angry at President Erdogan because although the president hates Israel and has said many very bad things against Israel, especially with what's going on in the Middle East right now, that this MP was complaining about his president in that he was allowing trade to continue with Israel. But one of the things that caught my attention was the fact that he said, you, speaking to the president, are going to suffer the consequences because Allah is angry at you. And as soon as he said those words, he dropped to the floor, had a heart attack, died a couple of days after. And I was reading that and remembering that this passage that we've just looked at speaks of a sudden death of somebody who did not give the true God the glory. And I looked at that and I said, wow, God, was that you? Just a coincidence. Yeah, just a coincidence. Well, the man died. So much for that, Herod. He was known as Herod Agrippa I. There's another Herod Agrippa II who will come on the scene later on in the book of Acts that we'll see again. The Herods aren't done yet. But this one is. And his persecution came to an end. Yes, he killed James. Yes, he imprisoned Peter. But no, he did not succeed in stopping the church growth. It tells us at the end... Again, in verse 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. It seems that persecution causes growth. Have you ever noticed that? Think about what's going on in places like China, where the church is the largest church in the entire world. Iran is growing in numbers of conversions daily. Iraq, Sudan, in Israel, in Palestine, in North Korea. Not so much here. In all of those other places, there are great amounts of persecution. So what's 
your desire. Lord, leave things as they are because we're comfortable. Leave things as they are because we're prosperous and happy and everything's just hunky-dory. Or we should be saying perhaps, Lord, bring on the persecution so we can see your church grow and expand as it once did then, as it is in other places around the world now, in this present hour. Persecution may be the answer to that. And if it is, Lord, bring it on. Bring it on. I end today with the final verse in chapter 12, which now turns its attention away from Peter. And we won't see much of Peter anymore after this, with only a couple of exceptions throughout our study in the book of Acts. But it tells us now, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem So they were privy to all of that which was going on, just as we read through this entire chapter. But they returned to Antioch from Jerusalem. They had fulfilled their ministry there, and they also took with them John, whose surname is Mark. Barnabas is his uncle. He plays a significant role in at least part of the story that we are going to read following. But he plays a much more significant role with respect to the things that he did that Paul doesn't record, but he himself records. The book of Acts. A book of Mark, rather. And, And by the way, Mark is the only one that mentions this particular event in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they had come to arrest Jesus, remember there was a whole lot of confusion and there was a scattering of all the followers of Jesus? Well, Mark tells us in that account that he writes that there was a young boy who was there and one of the soldiers grabbed his cloak And he escaped from that soldier naked and ran. Doesn't name that one. But it certainly fits the description of John Mark. Why? How else would he know that detail? Later on, we find that Mark is going to be with Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. They make it to their first destination. But things aren't as easy for John Mark as perhaps he thought they were going to be. And perhaps he was remembering how dangerous it was that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he got a bit of a cold foot syndrome. They sent him home. That angered Paul. So that when... They decided they were going on a second missionary journey much later. Barnabas wanted to go back and get John Mark. Paul said, no way. And there was a division as a result of that. Paul would not have it. Barnabas said, I'm taking you with me. So Barnabas went with John Mark and Paul went with Silas. They went in two different directions. Was that a bad deal? 
As it turned out, it was very good for the church. God used it. It was wrong for them to have that dispute. They should have been able to settle their differences. But God used it. Much later on, Paul asked specifically for John Mark to be with him because he is so very helpful in the ministry. There was reconciliation. I wonder, how easy is it for us to reconcile the differences that we might have between a brother and a sister in the Lord? How easy, it is, how easy is it for us to reconcile a difference that we may have between us and a relative or a neighbor or a fellow worker? The Word of God tells us very clearly that we should strive to be at peace as much as we are able with everyone. So if there's anyone in your life that you've, you've rubbed shoulders with and had some issues with and there's been a separation... It's your responsibility to do all that you can do to restore that relationship. It requires both. So don't feel guilty if that relationship isn't restored unless you're the reason that it's not restored. So do your part, my friends, and let God do His. Finally, if you're concerned about the kinds of things that we've talked about with regard to persecution, with regard to the possibility of something very bad happening in our lives or in the lives of people we know, I want you to understand one thing. God has your back. He's got you covered. He goes before you and lights your path. He covers you in the shadow of His wings. He's placed you upon a solid rock, which is Christ. So look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Trust Him as the anchor of your soul. Do not fret. Do not worry. But live out your lives, not in fear, but in joy, knowing that He is God.